thank you. Thank you, music team, for helping us worship. We're going through the book of Colossians, and today we're still in chapter 1. If you're using the Black Pew, Pew Bible, this is page 1168. 1168. <clears throat> I'm going to start back at at uh, verse 9 again to get the flow of the Apostle's thought as we come into this hymn of praise that he gives to the Lord from verses 15 through 20. Last, last time we were together um, two weeks ago in this passage, we, we looked at the first half of that, and today, God willing, we'll look at verses 18 through 20. But I'm going to start back at verse 9. <clears throat> And go down through verse 23, just so you can be uh, reacclimated to the Apostle's um, flow here in his letter from jail. Just before we read, let's have a word of prayer again. Dear Lord in heaven, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for the many ways that you have preserved it through the centuries. Thank you how you originally inspired it from the pen of the prophets and the apostles. And Lord, thank you that you moved people throughout history to sacrifice greatly so that we might have the Bible in our own language. Thank you for this. Thank you for this portion Paul's letter to the Colossian believers that he wrote from jail. Lord, we're asking that you would help us now as we read again this morning and as we contemplate these passages, that you would help us to get a glimpse of the magnitude of the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And Lord, I pray that that glimpse would change us in deep, radical ways that would give pleasure to you. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> he, that is his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. You can hear there in the last phrases the Apostle Paul's concern that these people not, not be moved away from the gospel, that they hold tight to Jesus, that they keep clinging to Jesus. There were influences at work in that part of the world in that day that were trying to distract people from the supremacy and the sufficiency that is in Jesus Christ. And... Um, <clears throat> The Apostle Paul basically writes this letter to help the Colossian believers treasure Jesus Christ supremely so that they won't feel uh, allured to look elsewhere as though they're missing out on something. And I just want to say it again, if, if you have Jesus, or maybe, maybe it would be better to even say if Jesus has you, both are true. If you have Jesus, it's because Jesus has you then you've got all you need. That was true then, and it's, it's true today. Today, we're, we're, last week, we, we looked at the first part of this paragraph from 15 through 20, where it really speaks of Christ's supremacy over the, the first creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember, we saw that emphasis uh, two weeks ago. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So those verses are speaking of Christ's supremacy as the one who made everything. Now, uh, sometimes when we, when we look at the Bible, we get there are things that are hard to understand. One of the things that's hard to understand is the very being of God. He exists 
in three persons and yet one God. Not three gods or not three parts of one God or not three modes of one God, but three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons and yet one divine being. And uh, so we often hear in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, was that God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? Well, all three work together in many ways, and even in the first part of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, you have references to the triune God. The Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, and in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, so in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we have references to the Trinity all the way through the Bible, starting at the very beginning. But one of the things that we see as the Bible unfolds is that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was the main agent in creation. It's not that God the Father and God the Spirit were like checked out and on vacation somewhere. They were all involved, but especially God the Son was the main agent in creation. And we see this in Colossians chapter 1. He made everything. John chapter 1 says, everything that was made was made through him so that nothing that was made has been made except through Jesus Christ. So he is supreme over all creation because he made it all, but it also exists for him. And he holds it all together. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Now in verse 18 through 20, I think he's talking about Christ's supremacy over the new creation because he begins to talk about the church. Let's look at this little section together, starting at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so verse 18 is speaking of Christ's supremacy over the new creation, his new people and his new world, one that includes rising from the dead coming out from the realm of the dead. <clears throat> I just want to pause for just a moment and consider something with you. This whole section is telling us about the way Christ is, who he is. There's not one commandment given to us in this whole section. It is, it is a, what I'm trying to say by that is there's nothing we got to do. You know, so, sometimes we come to the Bible and we say, well, what do I got to do? And, and right now the Bible is saying, stop thinking about that and just look away from yourself and consider this person of Jesus Christ. This is the way he is. I got up this morning and walked the dog, which I usually do every morning. And uh, I just love it when, when the sun's coming up in the morning. You know what I was thinking? That sun's going to come up whether I'm walking the dog or not. That sun's going to come up whether I'm alive or not. 
That sun is just constant. Now, it's, it's, it's actually uh, derived in its constancy because Jesus is the constant that keeps, it, keeps the earth rotating and, and all of that. But from, a, what I'm, from my perspective, what I'm saying is that sunrise is not dependent on me doing anything, is it? It's just there, day in and day out. And you know what? This description is of our Lord Jesus is the way he is, whether we believe it or not. We don't have to make him preeminent. He is preeminent in everything. Now, it would behoove us to recognize him as preeminent in all things. But I just want to say this passage of Scripture is about the way things are, not something we got to do. Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ, is not like believing in Santa, where, oh, I can't see Santa, but if I believe strong enough and I believe hard enough, it'll be real for me. Santa will be real for me. That is not Christianity. Jesus Christ came into this world at a time and a place. It came about that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the known world should be taxed and registered. This was the first census taken while Corinthus was governing Syria. And it came about that Joseph, who was betrothed to a woman named Mary, went to his hometown of Bethlehem because he was of the house and the descendants of David to be registered there with his betrothed wife. Those are all historical markers. Jesus Christ came into human history. This is a statement about what is real, whether we believe it or not. It would behoove us to believe it. But I just want to make that clear. So as we look at these verses, let's just forget about for a second what I'm supposed to do and look at who he is. Jesus is supreme over all the first creation, the whole universe, both the visible things that we see and the invisible things that we cannot see. But he's also supreme over his new creation, his new people and his new world. What does it mean in verse 18 that he is head of the body, the church? Well, as the hymn has it, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. The worldwide church of God has one head and one leader, and it's not pastors and priests. It is Jesus Christ. He is the very image of God. He is the head of his church. It's interesting that the term body is used. He is the head of the body. I think that is to convey the organic nature of our union with Christ through faith. He calls us his body. And just like your head takes care of your body, Jesus takes care of his body. Uh, That is such an intimate term, an organic term. And this term, his head Him being the head, that term is used to magnify his authority and his supremacy over his people. The church of Jesus Christ will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because Jesus is the one building it. Jesus is building it. 
What does the phrase mean in the next the next phrase in verse 18? He is the beginning. Notice how that just kind of hangs out there. He is the beginning. Comma. In our English Bibles, we have a comma. In the original language, in the original manuscripts, there was no punctuation marks. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> there were no paragraph indentations, just one continuous Greek text. <clears throat> He is the beginning. What does it mean he's the beginning? I think what it means is he's the beginning of this new creation. He's the beginning of his new people, the church, over whom he's the head. And he's the beginning of the ones who are going to rise from the dead. He's the beginning of the new creation. When Jesus died and rose again, he started the new creation. Someday he's going to make it all new. But he starts with hearts and minds. He starts with hearts and minds and he works out. <clears throat> now what does the phrase mean? The next phrase in verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead. Once again, the term firstborn is conveying the place of authority over something, like it did back in verse 15. <clears throat> At another place, Jesus is called the first fruits of them that will rise from the dead. And I'm just reading now out of 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Now, what, what that, that's, that's going back to the Jewish calendar year where they had the feast of the first fruits every year when their first crops came in. They had to bring a portion of their first fruits to the Lord. And that was, a, that was in hopes that the full crop was yet to come. And Paul, using that term, he's saying Jesus is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. He rose from the dead. There's more to follow, is the idea. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, going on there, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. <clears throat> so there's a sense in which the Bible talks about Jesus being the first one up from the dead. Now, first one up, never to die again, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised the widow's son the widow at Nain's son from the dead. He raised the, the uh, uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead, but they died again. He's the first one that ever rose from the dead, never to die again, which is the beginning of this new creation. So the Bible talks about him being the first fruits of those who rose from the dead, but the firstborn, the firstborn has this sense of he is supreme from supreme over and the leader over all those who come out from the dead. <clears throat> he is the leader of those who come out from the dead. He is our ruler and he is our raiser. He will raise us up with him to reign with him. Christian, if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus Christ today, you will live even if you die. 
Amen. Thank you, King Jesus. Jesus said that to Martha in John chapter 11, right before he rose, raised Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Amen. And Jesus said, Martha, do you believe this? So Jesus is the firstborn as ruler over all those who will come out from the dead. <clears throat> the term from the dead is, is, uh, comes from the same word where we get exit from, ek, ek or ex, go out from. So he is the firstborn from, out from the dead. So that in everything, everything, he might be preeminent. <clears throat> so that means not just the first creation, not just the physical world, the unseen spiritual world, the unseen uh, cosmic realities, but also the spiritual realities of his people and those who come, from the, come back from the dead who are raised from the dead, Christ is supreme and preeminent in everything. What the apostle help, wants to help us understand is that God made it this way, that his son would be first place in everything, <clears throat> that he would be first place in the whole universe and in the new universe that he's making. He's going to be first place. <clears throat> he is preeminent. Oh, that we would humble ourselves before him and have him be preeminent in our lives and in our thoughts and in our actions and in our money and in our spare time and in our relationships with people. Do you know this? If you love Christ today, I love him too. And a million years from now, we're going to be together. Loving him. And then I will be as I ought to be. And so will you. Just our love for Christ and wanting him, wanting him to be seen as preeminent in all things is a powerful unifying thing, isn't it? I wish the winds of eternity would blow back in time upon us and help us to just get a glimpse of what it'll be like where we will be together forever with Christ. Well, then the apostle goes on <clears throat> in verse 19 and 20. I think 19 and 20 come as a package for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <clears throat> so before I dig into these verses with you, I just want to clarify the grammar in verse 19 because it can be confusing. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. <laughs> we don't, typically don't think of fullness as a subject, 
Um, and the verb being pleased to dwell and, and to reconcile to himself. I think, I think a clearer way of understanding it is for in him, for God was pleased for all the fullness of God to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. I, I just want to make that clear. I believe the subject of the verb is God. God was pleased for all of his fullness to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace, whether things in heaven or things on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now the next thing I'd like to do is uh, talk about an error that sometimes flows out of verse 20. Some people will read verse 20 and say, ah, there, he's... He's going to reconcile everything to himself. That means eventually everyone will be his friend. Even those who hate him now and even the devil. So eventually, and there's different versions of this, but it's called universalism. Eventually, the whole universe and every being within that universe will will be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ's cross. Um, I just want to say I do not believe that's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> and the reason I, I don't believe that is a, f a couple of reasons. The Bible is so crystal clear about the eternal damnation and eternal being cut off from the glory of God and his presence for those who hate him and reject him and will not find their happiness in him, uh, including the devil. The Bible is so emphatic on that. And so I, I just want to give you a, re a reference, a couple of references. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is talking about the parable of the, sh the sheep and the goats, you might be familiar with it. I'm just going to page back to it real quickly. Matthew 25, um, at the very end of that chapter, in verses 45 and 46, it says, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And... <clears throat> In the words of Christ there, you can see the parallel he's drawing. Just as the righteous will go into eternal life, the wicked will go into eternal punishment. So they're both on an eternal plane. Uh, then over in the book of Revelation, I'm just going to look over there quickly. If you want to turn, you're welcome to do that. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 14, verse 11 <coughs> this is <clears throat> this is speaking about those who worship the beast and its image and receive its mark on their forehead um, who hate Christ and it says in verse 11 of Revelation 14 and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
And then over near the very end of Revelation, in chapter 20, I'm going to read verse 10. And the devil and he who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I just, I just take time to go back and read some of those, <clears throat> those other passages that make, it, that make it really clear that eternal punishment is eternal. And so what Paul means here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, when it says, what, what, how should we understand the verse then if, if, if it's not universalism? And here's what I want to say. The universe itself has been tainted by the devil and his minions. God has allowed the devil to rebel and to lead a rebellion and the Bible says that even the heavenly realms, the book of Ephesians talks about the heavenly realms. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood in our life right now, but we wrestle against authorities, against powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. So God has allowed part of his universe, these heavenly realms, to be infested with demonic forces that breathe lies into people's minds and people act off of what they believe. They're believing lies about God and about truth and about eternity, but they act and live out based on the, their belief in those lies. Everybody lives by faith in something, okay? You either live by faith in God's word or you live by faith in your own intuition or faith in the, uh, your zodiac sign or your horoscope or whatever. Everybody lives by faith in something. <clears throat> and so people are, are influenced by demonic forces in the heavenly realms as they believe lies Jesus comes to deliver people from the domain of darkness and bring them into his kingdom where we can understand and know the truth. So how, are, how do we understand verse 20 where Paul says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross? Well, Jesus' blood paid to set everything right, not just those who will repent and humble themselves, but to set the universe right. And he's going to kick out the rebels. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, 13, Jesus talks about the outer darkness where his enemies will be thrown, the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe he's going to throw the devil and all of his demons and those who follow him into outer darkness. It's some sort of realm outside of the new heaven and the new earth where there will be peace. He's going to make peace through the blood of his cross, but through the blood of his cross is the way that he triumphed over the demonic forces. If you're in Colossians, you're in chapter 1. Just look ahead over to chapter 2 with me briefly. <clears throat> chapter 2. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trans our, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it. So it's a relative pronoun there. Some versions say that the, the, the it goes back to the cross. Some, some translators like the ESV are taking it back to Jesus and his triumph over the authorities, the principalities and rulers. But by this, the point is, by the same cross, he, he, he sets aside our, the legal demand that was against us so we can be forgiven. And by that same cross, he disarms and puts to shame and triumphs over the evil spirits, including the devil. I point that verse out to, to show you that the blood of his cross back in chapter 1, verse 20 can accomplish two different things. It can reconcile those who will humble themselves and turn to him in faith, and it can also deal a death blow to those who will not, those who persist in being his enemies. <clears throat> so I believe what Paul is saying in verse 20 is through the blood of his cross, Jesus is going to make peace in all the new heavens and the new earth. There will not be any more infestations in the heavenly realms of demonic enemies. <clears throat> now, I do, all of that is really kind of introductory. Isn't that crazy? Now, now that I'm out of time, come, I come to... Well, well, you, sometimes you have to try to face plausible objections that people raise just so you don't get derailed. You know what the main point of this passage is? Here's the main point. God was pleased to do something. God was pleased. The main subject is God. The main verb is pleased. He was pleased for all his fullness to dwell in Jesus. And he was pleased to, through that Jesus, full of God, to reconcile all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. All future peace that you will ever taste was bought on Calvary. All of it. In fact, I believe even all of our common grace was purchased at Calvary too, but that's another discussion. But all future peace was bought by the blood of the cross of Christ. You know I like that quote from Fyodor Dostoevsky, who said, I'm not going to quote it all, but I believe like a child that in the end, on that grand finale, something so precious will occur that it will suffice for all hearts. It will make up for all the human suffering. It will not only make it possible to forgive, but it will justify all that has happened. Well, all I got to say is if Dostoevsky was right on that, it's only because the blood of Christ's cross 
It's only because something so precious happened at that cross. It purchased something so precious to come when he returns and the grace to be brought to us when he returns. The Son of God bled not just to reconcile us, not just to reconcile people, but to reconcile a broken universe to God. God takes pleasure in the Son, in all that He is, and in His sacrificial reconciling death. God has made Jesus Christ preeminent in all things. We don't make Him preeminent but by God's grace, we can recognize him to be that. Oh, the pleasure that is in Jesus Christ. Now, just almost done here. Just follow with me for a moment. Think about pleasure. We, t- we said in Sunday school today, you know, really more profound than the problem of pain is the problem of pleasure. Uh, you know, It makes sense that bad things would happen to bad people. I mean, uh, I get off track sometimes. What doesn't make sense is that so much good, my heart would keep beating. Oxygen would keep filling our lungs while we're sitting here in a heated building. We can go home and drink coffee. There is pleasure all over the place. Where does that come from? Okay, I'm kind of getting off track, but think about pleasure for a second. Who has more pleasure than God? (laughs) Nobody. He's the greatest of all beings, so his pleasure must be the greatest of all pleasures, and he was pleased that all of his fullness dwell bodily in his son. And through his son, through his son's cross, to reconcile all things to himself. Setting all things straight with him. Setting things right with him. And that will include banishing evil forever in an outer realm. But it will also include setting all the universe straight, including people who will welcome this son. If God himself takes such pleasure in his son, ought we be able to find pleasure in him also? Surely there's no pleasure like the pleasure of Almighty God. Oh, the pleasure that is in Jesus Christ. And oh, the preciousness of Jesus Christ. I just want I just want us to consider the preciousness of Jesus Christ today as we come to a close. There's a in your hymn books, there's a affirmation of faith in the back on page 717. 717. I'd like to read it with you. It's called the Nicene Creed. In the early church, 717, it's way in the back. 
It's, it's back past the, the Psalms and the responsive readings. Keep going. You'll get there. If you get to the index, you've gone too far. Back in the early church, um, 325, a council was called in Nicaea to address a, a disagreement that had arisen about the person of Jesus Christ. A heresy was, was going around uh, that Jesus was a created being, that he, was, he had a beginning. And he, he, anyway, Athanasius and some others stood against that and says the word of God says he is, as the son of God, he is, he is not... He didn't have a beginning. He always was. He became a man in time and history, yes, in Bethlehem. He became a human being at a time and place, but he always existed as God's son with a human and divine nature. Let's go to 717 and just read together the Nicene Creed as a means of confessing the truth of Jesus that we hold as precious. So I'd like to read it together. We'll just go slow. You read with me. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. I just commend that uh, to you because it uh, magnifies who our Lord Jesus is. And when the Nicene Creed says, I believe in one Catholic in apostolic church, it's a small c Catholic, which is just a word that means universal, worldwide church. 
It's not the capital C like the Roman Catholic. It's, it, what, he's saying, what the creed is saying is I believe in one universal and apostolic church. But notice the effort put into describing the Son of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit of God, Son of God, you triune God, you were pleased that all the fullness of yourself in every way would dwell in Jesus Christ and through Jesus to reconcile all things to yourself, making peace by the blood of your cross. Surely, Lord Jesus, you are precious beyond our words. Oh, come to us, come to us. Holy Spirit of God, move in our lives and please, Lord, please become so precious to us. Be precious to us. May we find great pleasure in you in, and in anticipating your soon return in glory. Lord, I just pray for each one here today, and I just ask, Lord, you know where every heart is, where every person is, and I just pray that we would respond to you in the way that you are calling us. Let our hearts be soft and pliable in your hands, and let our lives be open. Lord, let us come with an open hand to you and say, Lord, I am yours. Save me. Be precious to me. Come and have your way with us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name.